What's happening, Hardscapers? This is episode 234 with the How to Hardscape podcast, where we talk about how you can start and grow your hardscaping business. And on today's episode is an end of year wrap up where we just bring together a cohesive storyline of our previous guests that we've had on our, our show this year. These are the uh, consultants, the industry experts, other people that we've had on the show besides the business owners and I take a snippet of their episodes and I put together I try to put together a cohesive storyline and we get into a lot of different things here everything from business owner personality types recurring revenue models uh, growth in your business hiring non-labor producing staff and what makes a company look appealing to purchase so these are all different themes that came up in conversation in interviews throughout the year. So I take snippets from everybody's interviews and I put them all together and you'll hear me introduce each of our guests through this as well as discuss shortly and briefly what each of these snippets is going to be talking about throughout this. So this does take quite a bit to actually put together here. So if you do appreciate this, I would really appreciate a review on Spotify or Apple. Apple, you can give a written review as well there. And we'll be going through a couple of reviews that we've gotten recently on the show at the end of this episode. But before we get into today's episode, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Cycle CPA. If you're looking for bookkeeping, accounting, CFO services, reach out to Cycle CPA at cyclecpa.com. Let them know how to hardscape sent you for $200 off their services there, as well as the how to hardscape headquarters. We've got lots of great things coming up for this winter and into the next year for the how to hardscape headquarters as well as company-wide chat groups for project specifics and you can document projects through that chat and it'll be stored with that project for the future so that you can continuously go back and be able to document certain things on the project as well as company-wide announcements, HR type of features for employees, for them to sign off on policies and as well as for them to actually accept certain policies, company-wide announcements and so on there. So if you're interested in that with budgeting, estimating, job costing, time tracking, scheduling, reach out to me at How to Hardscape on Instagram or just go to members.howtohardscape.com. It'll all be there for the How to Hardscape headquarters as well as the, our course content that you can also use to train and onboard your employees there. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. We kick things off here with Phil Harwood. He talked earlier with us on succession planning as well as Jeffrey Scott, another consultant in the industry who both are able to talk to a lot of different business owners at different stages in their business. And a question that I wanted to ask them throughout the interview was different personality types that they've seen with different business owners at varying aspects in their business or at different steps in their business. And I got a couple of good answers out of them, very brief ones here, but this kind of sets us up for actually creating a business that is worth selling in the future and what that looks like. One around talking about teams, another one talking about recurring revenue, which is what we're gonna get into next after these personality questions. In terms of the business owners that you have come in contact with over time and that business owner that is able to blow up their business, 
uh, to that whatever million mark it is in a very short amount of time versus the business owner that is still in their business operating and it's still relying on them for after 20 years, 30 years, 35 years, whatever that might be. What are some uh, personality traits that you've seen that are you know different between the two? Uh, that business owner that's able to step away from their business, they're able to allow people to you know operate in their business as opposed to the business owner that can't you know let go. Uh, different personality traits that you've seen or different things about them that you've kind of picked out that you're like, oh, this is definitely uh, what sets them apart. Yeah, the biggest one that stands out is the um, ability to fail, is the embracing failure. You know, because if you can't fail, then you're never going to try things. You're never going to turn things over or you're going to turn something over and someone's going to mess it up and then you're just never going to do it again you're never going to let someone else try i'm just going to do it you know i'm gonna do it myself for the rest of my life because the last time 30 years ago when i let someone else you know do this they didn't do it right okay well good luck <laughs> you give me running that cut off saw the rest of your life there brother um so being willing to fail i mean you and there's speakers there's ted talks on this you know Lots of failure. I mean, just look at all the great inventors. How many times they failed before they hit a home run? Any you know successful business people? Like there's there's books and books and books. There's you know sections of books at the bookstore on <laughs> business books about very successful people who failed over and over and over again. Before look at Abraham Lincoln, right? There's like posters. He lost he lost this election. He got. He went bankrupt and this happened and then he lost this and he lost, 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 fail, fail, fail. And then he was president and did the greatest thing in the world, right? So you just, you got to keep trying, but you got to be willing to fail. So if you're not going to be able to hire people, give them a chance, let them screw it up, coach them through it, replace them if you need to, go to the next person. Well, then you're never going to be able to grow. You have to, you have to let people make mistakes. So it's, you know, there's a lot of analogies between parenting and, and business leadership and, you know, same thing with your kids. Like you have to let your kids make mistakes. You have to let them fail. Like that's how they learn. And you coach them through it. I mean, if you, if you're the, so there's the helicopter parent that hovers over the kid. Right. And, does it, you know, but then there's the lawnmower parent who is out of ahead of the kid and like blazes the trail. So the kid never skins their knees. They never, make a mistake. They never make a bad decision. Like that's not healthy. Okay. So it's the same thing in leadership, letting people, letting people fail. Failure is a good thing. Is there a certain commonality between those business owners that you see that when you talk to them, you can say they have that they have what is necessary for them to achieve the growth and the scaling that they want to achieve, that they set out to achieve. Do you see any commonalities in terms of their personalities, in terms of the way they talk, in terms of the the actions that they do take in their businesses to get to where they want to go? You know, I wasn't quite sure where you're going to go with that commonality question. And so, uh, but I, I'll tell you the commonality of all businesses and all that all entrepreneurs have to face, no matter the size of business in order to grow. And that is, the commonality is, You've got to hire and build a team that can take you to that next level. So if you're at half a million and you want to get to a million and a half, you've got to start hiring people now 
they can get you to the million and a million and a half. If you're at 10 million and you want to go to 20 million, you may end up with different people on your team at 20 million than 10 million. But if you can hire them earlier on in the process, it'll make getting there so much easier. So if I understood your question correctly in terms of the commonality, that really is the silver bullet commonality of thinking beyond your status quo, thinking three, four, five, six years ahead and ponying up, is that a verb? Ponying up uh, the money it costs to hire that person. And you, you hear this sometimes from great entrepreneurs. Oh, I was the I paid that person more than me and that person more than me and that person more than me. Nothing wrong with that. Over, not overpaying, uh, uh, over hiring, hiring talent that can help you get through the next rung or two of scaling and paying for that talent uh, is a great way to scale. And you should all be doing that. Maybe not to the extreme I just said, but if you only hire for today's position, you're going to continue to struggle. Remember I said that struggle is optional in growing the business. So there's always challenges. Challenges are mandatory. Struggling is optional. Jeffrey brought up a lot of great points about struggling throughout that episode, but that kind of leads us into the different stages of growth, which we talked to uh, with Jim Houston. And actually, Jeffrey had his own take on a few different stages of growth. And Jim Houston has five different stages of growth that he outlines in his episode with us. And he takes us through a various hurdles that we may need to overcome in our business for these different stages of growth that he outlines in his episode here makes a lot of sense are there are there certain hurdles between those those three steps between those five different stages that you see are consistent hurdles that people need to get to for example if you're in stage one and you want to get to the next stage there's a specific hurdle that you need to overcome and same thing from two to three and three to four and four to five yeah i think it's mostly understanding what the next step is and this is why I've been trying to do a lot of writing about this, is that uh, once people have a clear picture of what the next step is, then it sort of clicks. And and this is where that uh, I think we do a lot of site visits to the clients around the country. And those site visits, for the purpose of creating vision in somebody, are essential. Okay. You see a lot of things today you got peer groups, that type of thing, people going to visit other companies. That's what they're doing. They're developing this mental picture of what the next step sort of needs to be. I had a client years ago in California. We had a, we called it a brainstorming meeting. And, uh, <clears throat> and Sam, the owner of this one company, they're doing probably about a million dollars in uh, residential installation work, very high-end work. And we had a brainstorming meeting and he came and we visited two really good contractors in Northern California. Well, Sam, he, he came to this meeting and he, at the end of it, he said, Jim, now I get it. And he went back and he put together a company and was very successful, but it was all that vision. It's a question of, you know, being hanging around people, networking, 
and you know developing that vision so you know what the next couple steps are <clears throat> otherwise it's sort of like people play, playing little league baseball they never realize that there are other steps where you can get up to the majors I mean, well if you never understand that well you're never going to pursue it and so this is where vision is really critical a lot of guys <clears throat> you know it's, it's, and you're really dealing with the mindset of men primarily and uh, <clears throat> and Fortunately, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately for me, I've been around guys and, you know, sports teams and things. Uh, I was in the Boy Scouts. I was in the, the Marine Corps, which is a pretty male-dominated organization. And so uh, understanding the, the psychology of guys is critical. A lot of guys go, you know, they, they won't reach out for help. You know, it's an ego thing. It's like, I can figure this out on my own. Well, great, you do it. And for 20 years, you're going to probably be stuck. And this is why networking is so important, uh, getting out, seeing other companies, that type of thing, being part of association, part of, um, you know, getting around your vendors and all that stuff. I, I call it it's important to build an internal team, but it's also important to build an external team, your CPA, your insurance agent, consultants, and things like that. And the smart contractors build that external team and it's a lot more than just grabbing a shovel or jumping on a skid steer, going out and building a you know a wall or putting in pavers or planting trees and stuff. It's all about the on-scene part of the business. Jim, is it possible to go from the first stage of business to the third or the second to the fifth or whatever, that skipping the different steps in the process? Or is that where business owners stretch themselves too thin and go out of business when the tide goes out and they get caught swimming naked? Uh, how how do you yeah. see that? <clears throat> you know, the revenue sort of goes at the first level about 300000 you know, six or seven hundred thousand, let a little over a million, two, two point five, three million, um, four million, then five million, something like that. If you grow too quickly, and if you don't have the team in place to manage all this stuff, yeah, you might get the revenue, but you're probably going to uh, overpromise and underdeliver, and <clears throat> you're probably going to have a quality control problem. And so, I, you know, I think 15, 20% growth a year is pretty sustainable. But in today's market, you can get plenty of work. In fact, most of my clients could probably double their revenue if they had the team to install it, you know, to get it done. Yeah. Can I get uh, maybe like closing thoughts on the five stages of growth? Anything that you want to say on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So <clears throat> closing thoughts on the five stages of growth is number one, realize there are stages you can study. And it isn't like you're just going to go out and work harder. You want to work smarter to go through these stages. Understand what the stages are and also understand that the stages are driven by people. You know, the types of people you're going to go from you working in the field to you managing crew leaders. Then you're going to be managing managers and then you're going to bring in, you know, financial people and all this other thing. And so I think that Number one, understand that you as a entrepreneur, your primary job is to build a team. And then you got to build systems. Then you got to network like crazy. 
and really understand what's going on in your marketplace. And this is where my laptop ran out of battery. So we pick up right here and Jim's telling a story about one of his clients that we get into just as we close off this initial episode. So anyway, so I'm up in uh, Boise, Idaho area. And I have a couple of clients up there. And one client, uh, Hans Ellis, introduced me to the V-Cut Cigar Lounge. So we would go there. We'd have a cigar, bourbon, whatever. So I'm up there, and he can't go that night. So I go, and there's uh, <clears throat> so I get a cigar, a glass of bourbon, whatever. I sat down beside a couple, and I get talking to the, the guy, and his name is Gabe. And uh, <clears throat> I said, what do you do? And he said, well, I just bought my father's excavation company a couple years ago. And so we chat a little bit. And then uh, I, uh, he asked me, well, what do you do? <clears throat> well, he knows my client, Hans. So um, I, I said, well, this is sort of what I've done for Hans and other contractors. I go in, help them, you know, deal with all the financial aspects of the company, how to price their work, how to format their P&L, how to track these, all this sort of stuff. He, and he goes, I was just thinking about that. <clears throat> well, he inherited his pricing from his father who who knows where his father got it, but it's sort of by gosh and by golly. And and I and I said, well, you know, uh, and he was interested in me coming in to work with him for a day. And I said, well, uh, we'll talk to Hans. He can give you a better idea if, if you think it's something you need and uh, get back to me. So he got back to me. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And so now here's an excavator. I think he had about seven or eight guys in the field. Some of the equipment he has costs half a million dollars. And so he had about 20,000 billable hours in the field. And we, we raised his prices roughly about $30 an hour. Now, and so I went back a year later. I actually did a magazine article on him as well, him and his company. But uh, if you take the 20,000 hours times 30 bucks an hour that's a lot of money that's six hundred thousand dollars yeah <clears throat> and so um you know i called him up about six months after i saw him the price there was no pushback to the pricing uh it was actually making the pricing more accurate but now gabe had a tax problem <laughs> so <clears throat> and i'm going well okay that's that's a good problem to have but we we raised the those twenty thousand hours on average, you know, twenty to thirty dollars an hour. That's a lot of money. And so this is where that uh, so much of what I do is going in and help uh, you know people, men and women, figure out what is reasonable pricing for their work. So there. So anyway, so that was pretty pretty exciting to see that happen, uh, and I got paid. And uh, the last time I saw him about four months ago, uh, we met at the V-Cut uh, Cigar Lounge. And uh, uh, needless to say, Gabe bought all the all the bourbon and the cigars. <laughs> Money well invested, I'm sure, yeah. for, for him, right? Absolutely. You were. 
Now we work our way back to Jeffrey Scott where he talks about being overworked and underpaid and how you can alleviate that struggle in your business from being able to hire admin staff, office staff to take a load off your plate, which is likely not what you're best suited for within your business. So you're overworked and underpaid. So we talked about underpaid, I think, or we did, but we only touched on overworked and it's connected to underpaid. Like uh, you have to, if you're doing as the owner, two different jobs, you got to have that money in the budget so you can replace yourself with somebody else and that money's in the budget and so where i see people overworked and this is connected to scaling is i see a lot of owners doing work in the office doing admin and the value add for them is not high like okay i get you're going to start off doing that but really you want to replace yourself from admin so you can go do higher value add work <clears throat> and uh to do that you're gonna have to raise your overhead to pull yourself out of that right and so you're gonna have to make some tough calls and i say tough more of a internal mental struggle tough but if you're gonna scale the business you need admin it's like a three-legged stool you need admin you need and admin includes finance, right? So finance and admin, you need production and you need sales. And so figuring out how to pull yourself out of all three of those ultimately is what it takes to scale the business. But <clears throat> you said your audience might be one to three crews. And I'm working with companies that are going to be on the upper end of that and up and higher and higher, right? But in any event, to scale your business, it's all about replicating yourself and having someone else do that work and setting up systems. And then as you grow from size to size, re-looking at those systems and revamping them with the new structure in mind. <clears throat> um, but I would say the first place is pulling yourself out of admin where you can. And these days you can hire part-time people for admin. I mean, it's easy to outsource admin locally uh overseas etc and to set other people up to do that admin for you so you can have a life the key is to enjoy your life while you're building the business and not get sucked so deep into the business that your family takes set play second fiddle you know that's only going to play for so long and at some point your family is going to give up on you. And I, that could be a whole separate podcast. You don't want that happening. And so you can't be burning the candle at both ends without bringing, giving due respect to your spouse and your children, et cetera, et cetera. And so pulling yourselves out of these multiple roles, admin is the first. I think in production, um, it's important, no matter how small your business uh, is to have a good second in command. You could have a one crew business and you could be the foreman and you better have a lead hand who is your right hand person and thinks like the foreman could become the foreman. Uh, and then you might have two crews or three crews. You better have one of those foremen that acts more like a, a field manager or is thinking at a high level and is your right hand person in the field. And so no matter the size, you want that right hand person or you might even have two divisions. And you might have two right-hand people. 
but not going it alone and having someone who's got your back, your eyes and your ears and is helping you grow that part of the business and and can be your eyes and ears so you don't have to be there all the time. Absolutely critical to you know getting your life back, but also to scaling the business and then ultimately doing the same thing on the sales side. So Jeffrey, you did mention the hurdle, the mindset hurdle of hiring for admin. Um, why do you think so many business owners see that as a mental hurdle to hire somebody on as admin? And then how do you yourself as a consultant coach or in the peer groups help people overcome that? Is it just a matter of telling them it's just it, you it's part of your budget, it's part of your overhead and you'll recoup those costs and you'll get some time back? Or what is that for you that you see to help business owners get over that hurdle? Yeah. You know, and whether it's admin or production or sales, it's really the same set of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> what is that mental hurdle? You know, some people have it, some don't. Uh, what stops me from bringing on admin? Uh, some of it's a lack of trust. I would say entrepreneurs have very low trust for a myriad reasons. Um, some is a lack of permission. Oh, I thought I had to be that person who did that. My uncle told me nobody will ever run your business as well as you. Don't trust anybody with your money, right? Somebody took away that permission to do that. And, and now I'm doing that. Uh, I might have a spouse who partially does it and they don't want to let go, right? And so we're in it. We're kind of stuck in it together. Um, I can't afford it. There's no way I can afford it. I can barely pay myself back to the whole pay issue. So I don't have time. I don't have time to think about it because I'm already wearing three or four hats. I don't have time to train somebody on one of these hats. So the obstacle comes from many places. Where where do you think it comes from? Where do you, you interact for, a lot with contractors? For me personally, I know where it comes from. And it's, I, I wouldn't say it's the lack of trust. I just think I, especially with something that is mine, uh, am very controlling. So it's very difficult for me to give up that control and give it into the hands of somebody else. That's called lack of trust. Okay. <laughs> so that it's a lack of trust. <laughs> it is. But it's also a lack of good systems. If you have a good system, a good software, that helps tremendously. Um, there is a one reason to not have trust, a good reason. Small businesses are very easy to steal from. So you need to have good accounting controls in place. But to have those accounting controls, you actually need multiple people. So you have one person, you know, doing AP payables and one person doing receivables. Or And that's hard to do when you're really small. And so finding the right person, uh, but also involving maybe your spouse or your outside accountant to come in and bring some of those accounting controls, the, the double check. That can help. So uh, there is a good reason to be controlling from that perspective. Uh, and so, I mean, in the peer group, again, we help empower people to work through all these obstacles. I mean, I have companies up to $20 million in my peer group. So we help you get through all the ranges of growth. Um, and that control issue is a big issue for many entrepreneurs. I just want to take a break from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Cycle CPA. 
You may have a CRM or project management software in place, but what data are you using to ensure your estimating is accurate? Having a proper accounting setup and accurate bookkeeping done is key to understanding overhead expenses and other costs that must be recouped in your estimates. Cycle CPA is a remote bookkeeping and CFO firm that helps to connect the dots from the financial reports to the hardscape and landscape data needed in order to reach high profits. They provide landscape and hardscape industry benchmarking, job costing financials by service line, advisory meetings, and much more. Cycle CPA's team of accountants are specialized within the hardscape and landscape industry, and you can visit them at cyclecpa.com and for $200 off, mention the How to Hardscape podcast. Now back to our episode. And this brings us to Corey Ballard, and he owned and operated a lawn care, lawn maintenance, landscaping business called Perfect Cut, and he sold his business. So he's been through all these different stages of business and on the other side of it now. So I wanted to ask him these questions that I've been asking uh, all these consultants as to what he did when it comes to hiring for admin, hiring for non labor producing employees and what that looks like in his business. I uh, want to ask you about employees here. How quick were you to hire, say, uh, non-labor producing employees like your CFO in terms of a pain point comes up and you pull the trigger to hire somebody and get somebody in position for something like that? Because that can be quite a leap for a company to do when they're not actually producing, you know, labor in the fields or any sort of position, uh, non-labor producing. How quick were you to do that? What was your mindset around that? Did you evaluate, you know, what they would do and, and what they would bring to the company before you went in to do it? Or were you just all steam ahead? Good question, because for me, it was really tough in the beginning. I remember um, Matt, who, again, is now eventually became my business partner because we bought my dad out and Matt became my business partner. And he just had a different perspective than me. And I had a tough time. Like, so we're going to hire that person and they're not going to generate any money. And he's like, no, no, but we they're going to manage. They're going to manage a team of people. And I'm like, well, we're going to pay them X dollars, but they're not going to produce money. So for me, that was tough because I thought everybody has to be, you know, getting their hands dirty, boots on the ground. Let's go. Um, even taking myself out of the field in the beginning was tough. And, um, I remember when Matt came to me at one point I had him, I stepped away from running the mowing routes and we had maybe 10 or 12 mowing crews and he, he was running the mowing and he said, I'm, I'm not going to run the mowing next year. I'm going to hire, I'm going to train. I'm going to hire someone to run the mowing. I'm going to focus on sales. And I said, I don't, what are you going to do all day? He goes, I'm going to focus on sales. And I go, that's not a full-time job, man. He goes, Oh, it is. And Every time we did that, we looked back and thought, what were we doing? Like he went out and just focused on sales and absolutely was able to add the clients that we wanted, the, the ones that were on our top 50 and top 100 and start to develop relationships with them. So, yeah, to your to your point and your question is it was tough. And then we had one admin person and then two admin people. And then it's like, oh, we need an HR person. Well, those aren't, you know, HR people today make you know, 80 to a hundred thousand to start, if not more. And I'm like, so we're going to pay that person a hundred thousand and they're just going to do the onboarding. And it's like, no, no, they're going to do the entire recruitment. And there's, so yeah, that was very tough for me kind of just being a little bit old school, maybe just a little closed minded. Um, no, 
you know, business classes or degree. And so I think I had a tough time with that. And I think a lot of small business owners do. They have a really tough time justifying how do I pay even a small company where I talk to guys and I say, hey, man, just get somebody 25 or 30 hours a week. Maybe it's a retired school teacher and have them do your books. Well, I can do my books. Well, I know you can do them, but is that the best use of your time? What if you could solely focus on the company and you could pay this person 20 hours a week to just get your invoices out and get, you know, get your bills paid. And, you know, it's always, well, I don't think I can afford them. And I, now today I go, man, you can't afford not to, because that 20 hours a week you're spending doing invoicing. If you're the best salesman at the company, you got to get out and sell. Or if you're the best guy at operations, get out and run operations. And so for me, it was tough. Um, every time we brought somebody in that was a non-working, you know, non-field working person, that overhead burden always scared me a little bit, um, but it is absolutely necessary if you want to grow. And, um, you know, and you, at the time we didn't run the numbers like we do today. Now, anytime we add somebody, we look at, okay, what do they cost? What are they going to do? What does that free up for X, Y, and Z people? You know, how do we make sure that we get an ROI on this, you know, body that we're going to bring into our, you know, what we call our admin team. Gotcha. Yeah, excellent answer there. And uh, when it comes to getting employees, especially those labor producing ones, but also those non labor producing ones, where where was the best source that you found to uh, get employees, especially in a labor market that's so difficult to find pe good people? And then finally, asking Corey two more questions here. One being, at what point in his business did he decide that he could actually create this sellable business? And what does that look like in terms of his action going forward from that point in time? And then finally, what it looked like or what he saw or was told by the purchasing company, what made his business purchasable or something that was interesting for an outsider to actually go ahead and purchase his business and why? At what point in that journey do you start to think of Perfect Cut as something that uh, you can sell in the future? At what point does it uh, kind of click that you can start to build a scalable business that it may appeal to an outside company looking in on it that uh, they may want to purchase it? And what, what actions did you start to take from that point to create this business that you could sell in the future? You know, Mike, I really never thought about selling the company. Um, I loved what we did. I loved what we were doing with the brand. Um, I, you know, I really enjoyed that we offered opportunity for other people to not only work for us, but grow and join. And I had a guy that started working for me that eventually became a business partner. And today he's the president of Perfect Cut. Um, I saw incredible skill in him. He was, he's a great salesman. And I said, hey, you know, Matt, if you can go out and sell, you get the, you go get work. You're great at selling. I'm good at, I'm great at operations. My dad's great in the shop. He'll keep our junk running. Um, we were starting to get better equipment finally, but when it was still a lot of equipment and, and so, you know, I never thought about really selling the company. Um, I thought I would do it for forever. Um, but one of the things that we did do from day one is we really worked hard on our brand. Um, you know, our trucks are blue. And uh, that was non-negotiable for me. We, you know, our trucks were clean. Our guys were in uniform. Even when we were very small, we operated like a much bigger company. We always wanted to look bigger. Maybe that was ego and pride and, and me trying to prove to all the people that said I couldn't do it. Um, so even when we had four or five crews, we looked, you know, people would say, man, I see you guys everywhere. You're huge. And I'm like, well, we're not really. 
But, you know, if five white trucks drive by, they don't notice. If two blue trucks drive by you, they think that you're, that you're everywhere. So I knew from the beginning I wanted to create a strong brand. And, um, you know, and many times, actually, I thought about changing the name because I felt like Perfect Cut, you know, maybe just pigeonholed us into sounding like we just cut grass or people even used to joke, oh, do you guys cut hair? You know, it's like, no, we don't cut hair. Um, but we had built such a good brand with Perfect Cut and it was catchy enough that um, it worked. And, you know, so I didn't have a, an end game really in mind. I certainly started thinking about pretty early on, you know, is this business, franch you know, can we franchise it? Um, or could we, you know, go into other markets and duplicate what we did here in Des Moines, Iowa? And um, quickly realized that we were really, really good at getting work, getting work done. We were good with our people and leadership, but our backend systems lacked so much. And that's where a lot of companies fail. And we realized that we, you know, didn't have great, we just weren't great on the back end as far as software. We weren't collecting our, you know, we weren't getting our bills out on time, which means you're not collecting on time. Um, and so there was a lot to learn there. And, um, and we didn't really get those systems in place until we were, uh, almost a $10 million company. And we had a year where we did about 10 million in revenue. And we actually lost money. And, and that was very, very eye-opening to me. Um, probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it forced me to, to really take a look at the business, what service lines we offered, who was our ideal client, what does our business model really look like and, and who can we best serve? And because um, we were just doing everything for everybody. I mean, we just we we did everything and residential, commercial, you name it. We did it. If you asked for it, we were cleaning windows, sweeping parking lots. And so we had to get smart with our business and really focus on the back end systems. And, you know, at that point, uh, we hired a CFO that we brought in and, and, and she was really sharp and, and she helped get a lot of things all the way down to just, you know, employee handbooks and what's our hiring process and what's our orientation look like. And, you know, what type of training do we do? And, every aspect of it, you know, we were pretty sloppy. We, um, I've said this on a lot of podcasts, so sorry if I'm repeating myself, but you know, we had stuff insured that we didn't own anymore. We had guys that had cell phones that we had terminated and they still had a company cell phone. We were just, we just grew so fast that we really got sloppy. And so to answer your question, I didn't really have it like, Hey, we'll build this up and sell it. Um, it was, let's just build an incredible brand. Let's try to have a great culture great core values. Let's make those core values known by all. Um, let's post them up in our facilities and, um, and, and make people feel like they work somewhere special and treat them with respect and give them safe equipment and, and then go out and do great work, you know, cause you can sell all day long, but then you got to execute. Uh, in your opinion, or maybe you were told uh, by the company that actually bought Perfect Cut, uh, what was the most appealing thing about acquiring Perfect Cut for them? Yeah. So just real quick, you know, Perfect Cut was not for sale. Um, we, we had no intention of selling. Um, we actually part, we kind of call it a partnership, but a Heartland company um, out of Kansas City, I think they own about 18 companies in the U.S. and in their platform now. They just kept reaching out and uh, we said, we're not interested. We're not interested. We're not interested. And um, Matt finally said, I'm going to go have coffee with with their guy that's in charge of mer mergers and acquisitions. And he said, hey, I think we should maybe explore this. And um so they just, they loved what we, they love, you know, they, they're always looking for the market leader, which we are in our area. Um, and they just loved our culture, our brand. Um, and so all the things that we've done for 25 or 30 years that 
people didn't think matters, they all mattered. Um, I love Matt was just on a podcast on the green grind with us. And he goes, everything matters. And that's so true. When guys are like, well, that's not that important. And that's not that important. It all matters if you want to build a great company. And so they loved what we did as a company. They loved that we were in three different markets. So we're in Des Moines, Omaha, Nebraska, and then Cedar Rapids, Iowa as well. So we've got a pretty nice area here. Um, we do a lot of maintenance. So companies that are looking to buy like the residual cash flow versus, you know, if you're just a hardscape company or just a landscape company, great business, very profitable if you do it right, but you're only as good as that next install. And so they love our snow and ice management and our maintenance because they want that residual cash flow. And so, um, you know, for us, it just made sense. It, it was a tough, I tell you, it was the toughest thing we've ever done. I mean, um, to sell something that you started from scratch. Um, I'm still involved. I'm still on our strategy team. Um, I'm still, nothing changes. So one of the things that we really liked about their platform was, you know, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, there was a lot of mergers and acquisitions. They'd come in to a company like Perfect Cut and a Brickman would buy them. And all of a sudden the trucks are tan and the guys are wearing different uniforms and all the policies change. And it failed miserably. And a lot of companies went back to the original owners. A lot of companies failed. And what I love about their model is they said, we want you to do nothing different. The only difference is they own the stock and I don't. Right. So we really wouldn't even have had to tell our employees. Um, nothing looks different to our clients. Nothing looks different to our employees. Um, but where the real value is, and I talk to guys a lot about this is, you know, having clean books. Our books were clean. We weren't ramrodding personal stuff through guys have their boat and their Corvette and they buy a grill and their books are a mess. You know, our company books were clean. We had a great business model. Um, we have great clients. Everything's in contract, um, you know, employee handbooks and safety and all the things that really are turnkey. Um, if you're running your own company and you're, you're wearing all the hats and you're not there, there's not much value. And, and so Matt and I had stepped out of that and we've surrounded ourselves with amazing people that we empower to make decisions daily and run the company. And so, um, you know, for us, it just made a lot of sense. We'd done this a long time. Um, financially, we were in a good spot and um, it took a little risk off the table because that both of, you know, both of us were like, you know, we do tree service. We got guys up in boom trucks. And what if somebody were to get killed and they're going to sue me and the perfect cut and Ballard products. And so, you know, for us, it just made a lot of sense. Um, and again, our entire goal from day one is how do we make sure we take care of our people? How do we make sure we take care of our clients? Um, and when they say nothing's going to change, is that true? And so we talked to a lot of other companies that they had bought and they've said, Hey, they've done everything that they said they would do. And to this day, we've been two years now, almost year, eh, 18 months since we sold, uh, they've been a great partner. Um, and actually, there's been some benefits as far as, you know, just because of the size, um, we can buy equipment cheaper, uh, a little bit better healthcare program when you consolidate into thousands of employees. And um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers your question for us. It's we were never for sale, though. It uh, it just made a lot of sense. And um, I don't regret it. But there's still days I see blue trucks drive by me every day. And I still tell people, I'm like, yeah, I, you know, they'll say, do you own Perfect Cut? I go, yeah. And then I'm like, no, actually, I don't. I don't own Perfect Cut. And, uh, uh, and they're like, what? And then I don't want to tell them the whole story. I'm like, oh. But 
um, it's been a great, it's been a great partnership and it's been a great, uh, um, situation for our entire team. Uh, my Matt Bowman, my business partner stayed on as president. Um, I'm still on the strategy team, as I mentioned, um, we're running it just like we were running it before. And, uh, and, and that's what they want. I've even said, you know, what do you want us to guys? What would you like us to change? Or Matt says, what do you want us to change? They say, change nothing. You guys are killing it. So that's what we do. And then finally, we get back to Jeffrey Scott, who talks about what can make a business a little bit more valuable. And something that comes up is recurring revenue, which brings us to our two final guests that we're going to have one back on. Phil talks about recurring revenue, what that looks like, especially since he deals with a lot of succession planning for businesses. And then finally, at the very end, we've got Andrew Veer, who talks about recurring revenue models within Hardscape, or at least being able to get the most out of your clients by following up with them in the future and showing on your revenue that you have a higher value client that you're able to both sell a project and then come back to them and maybe sell them on another project after you reach out to them or sell them on some sort of maintenance but also being picky and choosy on which clients you actually reach out to for this this is all encompassing in creating a business that is possibly sellable in the future but at least you are planning to be able to hand off an asset to the next generation if that's what it looks like for you for your succession plan or something that you could maybe get a little bit more money out of besides just the assets that you hold on your balance sheet. In the landscape construction industry where there's no recurring revenue and uh, it's a lot of assets and depreciating assets that are on balance sheets to be sold to, have you seen in your time businesses that are able to sell for much more than what their assets or their balance sheet would say uh, for them to sell for based on them finding a way to include some sort of recurring revenue model into their business or to improve the lifetime value of a client over their their period of time or whatever it might be having the right systems in place to be able to just hand off to a buyer or is a lot of what you've seen more so handing off to the next generation or uh, I, I do think that you mentioned uh, when talking about this bucket of businesses where maybe they just have the right people in place and they're able to more so take a back seat and kind of let the business do more or less that what it needs to do on its own. So depending on your business, the person listening, the answer is going to be some combination of what you just said. So really, I mean, it's very specific, right? I'm working with a company right now in Minnesota that is a landscape, hardscape install, mostly install company. And the owner is old and the his second in command is younger. And they're trying to figure out the succession plan. And of course, the owner wants to, when you get older, you're, you don't want to invest as much into the business, but... The company is, I don't know, it's a million, million and a half. And to transition, they've got to set up the tripod like I spoke about with admin, production, and sales. The owner's got to be willing to invest and, you know, maybe get rid of some clients that he, or I'm sorry, some 
an employee or two that helped him, you know, what got you here won't get you there, but he loves that employee, but that employee should have gone five years ago. And so the own, the owner's got to be willing to make some choices so that he can pull himself out so that the incoming person can come in and take over and buy the business. And both have to be flexible, the outgoing and the incoming. Now, you asked how the business gets valued. Uh, if you're going to st strip the business, then it's going to be based on asset value. It, but if you're going to build a business independent of the owner, something that can operate as a real business and not just a job, then it starts to accrue real value, whether it's through systems, reputation, um, marketing systems. Many, if the owner can pull himself out and that business can keep running, now we've got something of value. And so ultimately retiring in place, let me pull myself out slowly, is the same similar path to let me make this business more valuable. And it doesn't just require recurring services. We can do that with the hardscape business. We can do that with the landscape business. Recurring services helps quite a bit, but if the majority of the business, and as I think it is for those listening, is hardscape or install, let's say, uh, even that can be turned into a, um, a replicatable model that therefore has value. You know, one of the other things that, that, so when you think about these, you know, value builder factors, if someone takes that assessment, they'll see is, you know, just having reoccurring revenue, that's kind of on a subscription model. So thinking in terms of how do you sell services that are repeatable and that you don't have to sell all the time. So you think in hardscape, well, everything's one and done, but not necessarily. What if you sold a package of, um, you know, re re sweep, you know, sweeping and, and cleaning up and, you know, a, a paver patio, uh, just like people would love that people would appreciate that. Um, they paid a lot to have it put in, it looks wonderful. And then the, the next year it looks, eh, there's, you know, doesn't look as great. And then three years later, it looks really bad. And then five years later, they call you and, you know, they're mad. I don't know, maybe it's not that fast, but you know, like, what if you just offered a service package and, went out there and you know got it cleaned up every year they would love that definitely yeah i i've been thinking about that more and more what you just brought up there and we've had business owners on the podcast talk about everything from lifetime warranty packages but it's paid up front in an initial investment and um like you said uh and i'd like your opinion on this uh would that be less valuable to a uh new or, or somebody looking to purchase that business, then if you were to not make that, you know, lifetime warranty package payment upfront, but rather create that recurring business model where each yeah, year- Yeah, you want the reoccurring revenue. You want yeah. the reoccurring, absolutely. So I would not do the upfront. I would do uh, reoccurring revenue. You know, I think about, okay, you put in this big hardscape package, maybe you work in lighting. Well, lights need to be cleaned. So maybe, you know, twice a year or- four times a year, once a month. I don't know. You have different, different packages. People you're going out to these properties and you're cleaning off the lights and you're making sure the position properly and you're replacing bulbs that are burned out and you're fixing the wire that the critters chew through. And I don't know, you're just, you're, you're just keeping the thing going forever. It's a subscription. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. And it was it like residual income in terms of you are servicing clients and they see on your books that that client is a repeating customer or is that residual income like you sign them up on some sort of recurring revenue plan where they paid you mm-hmm. monthly, yearly, whatever that might be for you to actually maintain that space? Yeah, well, really, um, for, for us, the way my system was, was that we you know, we tried to actually you know, even when we sold the project, we would be selling maintenance. Hey, we will be here to take care of your project for whatever you need. So many times we do a, a driveway or a patio and you basically just want to lose that client. Like you never talk to them again. You never speak to them again. And and that's that's a huge mistake in our industry. We, we used to sell pavers as being maintenance free, but all pavements need maintenance. It doesn't matter what type of pavement it is. It needs maintaining. Permeable pavements, especially, need need maintaining. Right. So I just had a different mindset that, that repairs and maintenance should be part of of any hardscape business. Um, people that buy houses, they have problems with driveways. It needs maintaining. They may not even know who put the project in. You know, and you get that. Adage where people say, I don't go on other people's work. Okay, well, that's insane. There'd be no mechanics in the industry if someone said, well, I didn't sell you that car. And the other challenge is, too, is, is if you buy a $70,000 pickup truck and you take it back to the dealership for the, for the first oil change, and they say, whoa, sorry, we just sell the cars here. We don't maintain them. It's insane. Right. So you sell someone a sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar project, but you don't have a maintenance division or a service department to take care of that customer that you should never let go. Right. All that spent eighty grand with you, you should never let them out of your sight. Right. So that's that's my personal opinion on that. That's yeah, that's excellent. And um yeah, I like the idea of especially if you paid money to obtain that client in terms of like dollars spent in ads uh, to be able to keep them on to improve that lifetime value of that clients much better for your business. And how did you go about selling them on that maintenance? Because I, uh, one thing that I've struggled with in kind of creating this maintenance type business is a lot of clients see pavers as like a, a longer term solution as for a pavement uh you know solution for their house how do you sell them on maintenance on top of that added cost to pavers to say mm-hmm. yeah how do you how did you go about kind of talking them into uh maintenance for that so there's a couple of things that, that we that we used to do um one of them was that um if to come out and maintain the project um, we would extend the warranty Okay, so if we, we initially in those days, I mean, warranties are so long right now. It's, uh, you know, my children's children will still be maintaining some of these checks, right? But um, the key was that like, if we can come out and, and clean your your uh, driveway, just clean it, maybe even seal it uh, one time, we'll give it another five-year warranty if we're able to come out and inspect the project and take a look at it. So, and, and I actually got... But the idea from that, from a roofing company I used to work with when I first came to America, was the renewable warranties as well. With that, it gets you back in front of the customer. It keeps you in their mind, even when that comes to referrals or my next door neighbor. And, oh yeah, you know, call, uh, you know, call Samington or call Andrew, and um, you know, get you back in front of your customer. Just marketing and, and 
and getting the initial job. That's where all your investment is, right? And then your return on your investment comes on each subsequent visit you get to go to someone's house, maybe accessories or paper lights or even if it's not sealing, right? The, the other way you would sell it is if I left the car in the driveway for five years, how would it look if you never washed it and you never cleaned it? What would be on top of it? What would be the surface that you would see? Because that's exactly what's in your pavers. And pavers are not poured concrete. They're, you know, they do need brightening and refreshing and, and looking good, which we can do, right? Um, just like you can a car. If you, if you clean it and take care of it and the surface, it looks new for many, many years. And I think the other thing too is people forget at least a 50 year pavement, right? If you install the pavers with ICPI guidelines, for instance, um, you're building a 50-year pavement, no problem at all. Um, but, you know, contractors basically take a system and then shortcut it. And so every time you take a shortcut, it's like adding water to concrete. You can exponentially weaken it. So, you know, build it right, build a 50-year pavement and, and keep it a customer. That's really, that should be the way to do it. So then when you uh, would present a proposal to a potential client would you include like your base warranty and then include another package where if you paid this much this would be your extended warranty that you would get based on us maintaining the space or how would you go about creating that maintenance inside of that package well in construction right we have good clients and then we have clients that we genuinely absolutely don't want to see ever again right there's no there's, there's got to be 10% of the people where, you know, you, you pull, pull off the job site and then you're just licking your wounds, thanking whoever that you made it through another project and let's get started on the next one and get that behind you and set fire to the file, right? Um, I agree, there's definitely some people out there that you might not want to do business with in the future, so I leave that choice up to us, right? So, uh, you know, maintaining your sanity in this industry is uh, job one. And we all have problem clients from time to time. And, uh, yeah, so we didn't put that in. But every job that we did sell, we put as an option, for instance, on the contract, what it would cost to use polymeric sand and what it would cost to additionally seal the project after it's finished, right? Um, especially with sealer. So that would always be a separate item. Um, once we've collected the money, on the first go, don't put sealer in there included with the project because if the weather is bad for the next three weeks, that's holding up a big completion check, which you don't want. So what we would do is, um, you know, when we were finishing, you know, for instance, Mrs. Winklestein's driveway and uh, the guys are hosing it off, finishing it. Wow, the color looks great. Well, uh, and then the foreman would say, if, you, if you'd like it to look like this, we have a line item that you can okay and send back into the office and they'll get you on the schedule. You get the job completed and paid first. It's usually a good idea. So yeah, sometimes it's at, at the end of the completion of the project, you would get the, you know, the first round of a maybe a ceiling or maybe they want polymeric sand. But if you don't offer it to people, they won't get it. So, uh, you know, there's no point in keeping stuff like that secret as well. You know, you have to no again. You have the if you have the world's best mousetrap, but no one knows about it, doesn't make any difference, does it? So, 
um, that, that again, let people know what you have, all of your services at the time. So it's successful. I like the idea of like the ceiling is kind of just an add on because you want to get paid for the work that's already done and not run into that weather. And my next question, you, you kind of went into it. It was uh, what if you did sign up maintenance with a bad customer that you don't want to see again? Because that's a that's definitely a crucial one there. Um, was this something that you toyed with implementing a uh, recurring uh draw on a customer in terms of a monthly price uh or was this something that you just kept them in mind and reached out to them when it was time to reseal or whether you wanted to see whether uh they needed resanding or anything like that um, well there's a couple of things with that is you have to be careful of the legality of that so in in some cases um if you offer a maintenance program that is prepaid uh there's at the time, there, there were some, some laws in Florida, I think, and uh, we took some legal on it that that wasn't a good route to go down. But it is a good route, for instance, to make sure that you're staying in touch or that you've allocated a salesperson for that project uh, with that. And, and then, you know, you have a file cabinet full of gold. All of your old customers you haven't reached out to in the last five or ten years or two years or three years, you should have someone going through that file cabinet, you know, calling them up, hey, Mrs. Winkelstein, how have you been? Uh, we did your driveway. Oh, you're still in business? And even from that initial re-phone call or reacquaintance with your company, um, yeah, you know what? We, we did our patio and we're looking at doing our driveway. We're so glad you called. I can't tell you how many people responded, we're so glad you called us, right? Because that's one of the hardest things in sales as well is, you know, no, thank you. I don't want to hear from you. But it's amazing how people that you've done business with want to do business with you again. You just have to give them the opportunity. So, um, and I think we miss out on that as contractors a little bit is, is giving people the opportunity to continue to do business with us instead of it being just a one-time sale. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. If you found this helpful at all, a written or a rating review on Apple or Spotify would really help us here. We've got a written review on Apple titled Very Informative from Elrath Well Designed. I follow and listen to each and every episode. I'm a landscape designer based in Ottawa, and I find this content and info relevant and super informative. Thank you. And thank you for that review, as well as another one here from AMB Contracting. Wish I would have found this sooner. Five stars there. I recently found this podcast and can't get enough. I own a small contracting company, and we do a lot of hardscaping. I'm very passionate about the industry and enjoy learning about other hardscapers and their journeys through the industry. So thank you so much for those written reviews there on Apple. And I will get to anybody that leaves a written review on Apple on future episodes as well. And you can always go back and listen to the full interviews of each of the guests that I introduced on today's episode. This was all back from the previous year, 2023. And we look forward to more guests in 2024. And once again, 
thank you to our sponsor, Cycle CPA. If you're looking for bookkeeping, accounting, CFO services, reach out to Cycle CPA at cycles underscore CPA on Instagram or cyclecpa.com. Let them know how to hardscape sent you for money off their services there, as well as the how to hardscape headquarters. If you're looking for uh, budgeting, estimating, job costing, scheduling, time tracking, a CRM, as well as HR features for your employees, including training and onboarding courses, reach out to us at how to hardscape on Instagram, or just go to members.howtohardscape.com. And we look forward to meeting with you next week on the How to Hardscape podcast.